The Lord be with you. And also with you. The Almighty God lives as three in one and one in three and forever reigns in the perfect unity of love. We gather for ordered worship to worship Almighty God, to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God. We gather to worship Almighty God. The liturgy, music, and homily this morning are offered for our congregation here within Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of service and leadership in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
may we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We begin this week in this hour together upon this Lord's Day, looking out at the unforeseen future, confident, as John Wesley taught, in the pardoning, forgiving power of God. Regularly he asked, do you know God to be a pardoning God? Because in this moment of remembrance, we recall that we have been forgiven. We then, in the week to come, may forgive. We have been pardoned, so we also may pardon. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. As the choir sings our traditional Kyrie, Lord, have mercy, may we bow in a time of individual confession. Let us pray.
hear good news if we confess our sins. God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Speak to God.
Dear friends, let us say together verses from Psalm 8 with the Antiphon. Our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us stand as you are able and sing together the Gloria Patri and listen for the word of God in the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. Glory to you, O Lord. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> For this Sunday, our lessons evoke a triune God, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. 
I look at, look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. My friend attended another here unnamed divinity school, which at the time was blown about by many, if not every, wind of doctrine, so much so that my friend, with a bit of whimsy and humor, described their theology thus, God in seven persons, blessed heptopoly. Well, here today we shall limit ourselves to three, the three persons of the traditional Godhead. Psalm 8 evokes God as creator. Romans 5 evokes God as redeemer. John 16 evokes God as sustainer, father, son, spirit. These are choice endlessly lovely passages, any one of which and any verse from any one of which should deserve 22 minutes of preaching attention and acclamation. Perhaps this summer we shall memorize one or more of them. The Christian doctrine of Trinity is, of course, a deeply mysterious matter out of reach of most of us most of the time. How can God be both one and three? Faith, we must surmise, involves more than math, not less than math, but more than math. If nothing else about the Trinity, let us remember this. God is relational on this teaching. At the heart of the divine, there is relationship of first to second to third to second to first. This is what the early church found in Jesus, the God to whom Jesus prayed, the God who guided and inspired Jesus, and the God in Jesus himself. This is what the early church found in the scripture. Psalm 8, Romans 5, John 16. And this is what the early church found in life. The rush of creativity, the joy of love, the breath of spirit. In our gospel today, the scripture goes even further in a way giving privilege, at least here, to spirit that guides to truth. Once the creation has emerged, once redemption has been offered, then it is a matter of spirit, spirit, wind, breath, gusting spirit of God. We preach and pray at the crossroads of faith and culture, This is true for every congregation, pulpit, and place, but especially and keenly so right now at Marsh Chapel. In a new, perhaps conflicted way across the country, we may be listening this summer for words of grace out of our holy scripture, out of our traditions, out of our sacred history, and wondering, hoping, perhaps doubting, but still hoping, that these as preached may help us make some sense of what is becoming of us as a people and as a country in our time. We desire a faith amenable to culture and a culture amenable to faith. For what good is a baptized cleansing if we are simply thrown back into the mire? No personal and social holiness in our tradition are married to one another. Loving faith expects loving culture. For all the attention we rightly give to politics and economics, it is really the cultural realities that have most impact on individual lives over time. 
when an eight-year-old bursts through the back door crying, telling her mother that her school friend from Mexico must now be deported, hers is a culturally inflicted wound. When an 87-year-old woman in a nursing home rues the collapse of her lifelong political party and surveys its demise and damages with the word dismaying, hers is a cultural assessment. When a candidate, given to insulting his competitors and branding them with epithets, reflects on defeating one by calling him low energy, and months later, in further reflection, saying, that was a one-day kill, and then adding, words are beautiful things. As my dad said, it's one thing to be tough, it's another thing to be mean. When that is said, do you hear that? We suffer a cultural decline. When a great Christian denomination lacked spiritual leaders, general superintendents who could simply say together, gay people are people, only one active Methodist bishop in the Northeast, Peggy Johnson, did so this past week. This is mostly a cultural assessment and measurement. When only 24% of 17 to 24-year-olds are eligible to seek admission into the armed forces, the other 76% ineligible due to obesity, lack of a high school diploma, drug use, criminal record, failure of physical exam, or other. Here we trace cultural influence. When forms of worship meant for enchantment give way over two generations to a pseudo-worship aimed at entertainment with direct connections to features of reality television, professional wrestling, and beauty contests, the same social expressions now driving some political selection and debate. We face a cultural deficit. In short, when a culture like ours has a mirror held up to it, as has happened this calendar year, and the image is more appalling than appealing, then some among us may begin to return to, to revert to, a reconsideration of our more ancient repositories of wisdom, scripture, history, thought, and scrutinized experience. In an age of broad cultural malaise, some may seek more steadily now the reassurance, peace, insight, and resolve to be found in moments of truth, goodness, and beauty in ordered worship. Those in the pulpits across this country have our work cut out for us in 2016. How shall we invoke and evoke faith fit for culture and culture fit for faith? How will we address incivility in a civil way? How do we oppose demagoguery with democracy? How do we contrast buffoonery with beauty? How does one supplant cultural disorder with liturgical order? How do we combat fear with faith? We have our cultural work cut out for us this year. Thank goodness we are not alone. Blessed Trinity blesses us, especially as Trinity leans to spirit this morning. There is a self-correcting spirit of truth loose in the universe leading us. Next week we shall begin hearing for six weeks along with Luke 
from the epistle to the Galatians, chapter by chapter, speaking of spirit and truth, speaking of relationship, speaking of the new creation. The Trinity leads us toward Galatians on this Trinity Sunday. So here is your preparation for the Holy Scripture of the next month, your shakedown cruise for the trip to Galatia, your introduction to Paul, freedom, spirit, and new creation, and the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Such beautiful verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the faith. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast therefore and do not be enslaved again. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faith, gentleness, self-control. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here is, in short, the story behind the epistle lessons you begin to hear next Sunday. Paul's epistle to the Galatians is one of the great high peaks of the New Testament. It is about a whole new life, a whole new creation. In fact, it may be the highest peak in the whole range, the Mount Everest of the Bible. It is written to address this one question. Must a Gentile become a Jew before he can become a Christian? Is there, that is, a religious condition to be met prior to the reception of faith, God's apocalypse in Christ? After Paul had been converted to Christ, he spent 17 years in unremarkable, quiet ministry. We know nothing of these two decades spent in Arabia. All the letters we have of Paul come from a later decade. Paul was converted to Christ, as he says earlier in this same letter to the Galatians, by apocalypse. Christ revealed himself to Paul. Thus, for Paul, the authority in Christ is not finally in the scripture, nor in traditions, nor in reason, nor in experience. Christ captured Paul through none of these, but rather through revelation, a mysterious word. In short, Paul was not a Methodist. There is a singular, awesome freedom in the way Paul understands Christ, and we have yet, I believe, in the church that bears his name, to acknowledge this freedom in full in Christ. After these 17 years, Paul went up to Jerusalem to meet with the pillars of the church. Can you imagine the moment all in one room? Paul, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Titus, Barnabas. And in that room, there was argument, heated, difference. Paul had been preaching the cross of Christ to unreligious, uncircumcised people. And they heard What would the Jerusalem elders say? Paul was crossing a huge line, a very specific kind of line, by the way. God had been doing something astounding and something new. Jesus was a Jew and had been circumcised. So also were all the first Christians, including Paul himself. And yet it was these Gentiles who were following and fervently responding to the preached good news. Should these unreligious children of God be brought back into an older covenant of circumcision? No. 
They all agreed, Peter and Paul and all. No, God was doing something new. So Peter went to the circumcised and Paul went to the uncircumcised. Peter went to the Jews. Paul went to the Gentiles. They agreed to disagree agreeably and the meeting ended and it was settled. But don't you know how sometimes it's not the meeting but the meeting after the meeting that counts? What was settled in Jerusalem was unsettled later. Paul couldn't be counted on to hold the line. Peter couldn't be counted on to hold the line, and Paul told him so to his face. Peter was inconsistent about freedom. Sometimes he ate with the unclean Gentiles, and sometimes when somebody was watching, he backed away. And so Paul caught him at it, and as he says, I opposed him to his face. Don't we wish that all opposition in church and life was so clean, so direct, so personal, and so honest? One of, you, one of us is wrong, and I think it's you, said Paul to Peter. Paul doesn't talk about Peter. He talks to Peter. Now there's a life lesson. Said Paul, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. Not religion, not wealth, not gender. All of these give way before spirit. That is, in Christ, in faith, in new creation, in the resurrection, there's no gender. At least, according to Paul, in Galatians 3 and 26. In Christ, there is no male or female. Notice the phrasing. Paul changes that phrase to match up in contrast to Genesis. Gender is swallowed up in victory. We have yet, I doubt, to take seriously the good news of liberation found in these passages. Your identity does not come from your sexuality, your gender, or your orientation. In this passage, in the Bible, Paul points to a clue as well to one of the great arguments of our day. Here, your identity is not to be inferred from creation, but from new creation. This apocalyptic baptismal formula declares the erasure of the distinction we so heighten between male and female. So my beloved teacher, Lou Martin, some years ago, quote, In Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul uses an argument explicitly based on creation, drawing certain conclusions from the things God has made in the creation of the cosmos, Romans 1, 20. In effect, Paul there says in this passage that God's identity and the true sexual identity of human beings as male and female can both be inferred from creation. What a different argument lies before us in Galatians 3 and Galatians 6. Here the basis is explicitly not creation, but rather the new creation in which the building blocks of the old creation are declared to be non-existent. If one were to recall the affirmation, it is not good that man should be alone, Genesis 2.18, One would also remember that the creational response to loneliness is married fidelity between man and woman, Genesis 2, Mark 10. But in its announcement of the new creation, 
The apocalyptic baptismal formula, Galatians 3, declares the erasure of the distinction between male and female. Now the answer to loneliness is not only marriage, but the new creational community that God is calling into being in Christ. The church marked by mutual love as it is led by the Spirit of Christ, Galatians 3.28. The result of such a radical vision and of its radical argumentation is the new creational view of the people of God. It is Christ and the community of those incorporated into him who lie beyond religious distinctions. Baptism is a participation both in Christ's death and in his life, for genuine life commences when one is taken into the community of the new creation in which unity in God's Christ has replaced religious ethnic differentiation. In a word, religious and ethnic differentiations and that which underlies them, the law, are identified in effect as the old things that have now passed away, giving place to the new creation. God is calling into existence, a new community of faith, faith working through love. There is your identity. Not what is natural, but what is heavenly about us forms our primary identity. That is, the Bible itself, from the vantage point of this great mountain passage, this high peak, opens the way for an understanding of identity that is not just nature or creation, but is new creation. This is the community of faith working through love. Here there is a place where God may be doing something new, revealing something new. And most strangely, it may be those who are not so easily confined by the creational categories of male and female, those who are both or neither, who are on the very edge of the new creation. I know what Paul writes in Romans. But you must still ask yourself at this point, which is Mount Everest, Galatians 3 or Romans 1? It is my judgment that Galatians 3 is thus. Gender and orientation do not provide our primal identity. There is no male and female, which means no gay and straight, no homosexual and heterosexual. God is doing something new, which includes all in the community of faith working through love. We worship together on Trinity Sunday. The triune God summons us to relationship and complexity and courage to seek the truth. The Spirit of God leads us into all truth. Come Trinity Sunday, we recall that there is, by God's triune grace, a self-correcting spirit of truth loose in the universe. The trajectory of Paul's preaching in Galatians, and thus in total, makes ample, wide, global space in our churches and in our church for gay people. If you love Jesus, and especially if you love the Bible and its great high peaks, then you may just find courage not only to defend a moral life in a post-moral culture, but also and more so to preserve freedom for those who have found a whole new life and so are very harbingers of the new creation itself. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither 
slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in him. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. We turn our hearts and minds to prayer this morning, singing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. And as we do, you may remain seated, stand, kneel, or come to the communion rail according to your tradition. We come boldly to the throne of grace, praying to Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for mercy and grace. Father of heaven, whose love profound, a ransom for our souls has found. We pray for the world created by your love, for its nations and governments. Extend to them your peace, pardoning love, mercy, and grace. Almighty Son, incarnate Word, our prophet, priest, redeemer, Lord, we pray for the church created for your glory, for its ministry to reflect those works of yours. Extend to us your salvation, growth, mercy, and grace. Eternal Spirit, by whose breath the soul is raised from sin and death, we pray for families and individuals created in your image, for the lonely, the bereaved, the sick, and the dying. Breathe on them the breath of life, and bring them to your mercy and grace. Thrice Holy Father, Spirit, Son, Mysterious Godhead, three in one, we pray for ourselves, for your church, for all whom we remember before you. Bring us all to bow before your throne in heaven, 
to receive life and pardon, mercy and grace for all eternity. As we worship you saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And we pray in the words that Jesus gave us saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew, passing that book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. Things have slowed down a little bit here at Marsh Chapel as the semester drew to a close last weekend with our commencement activities. We are here every summer, every Sunday throughout the summer, uh, and we would note especially our upcoming summer preacher series beginning in July. Our theme this year is A Lucan Horizon. The full schedule of that series is available online and in your bulletin. If you are wondering what Dean Hill is doing during the six weeks that he will not be in the pulpit during that preacher series, you may refer to the list of his pre uh, preaching, speaking, and other activities also in the bulletin uh, to find out where he'll be. Where in the world is Dean Hill? We hope you will join us following the service downstairs for coffee hour, and as the ushers wait upon us this morning, we invite you to meditate on John Stainer's setting, God so loved the world. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
for the work before us, for the life within us, for the fellowship among us, for thy love that surrounds us, we offer our thanks, O God. Bless these gifts and the givers, we pray in Christ. Amen. the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you, the blessing of God Almighty, creator, redeemer, sustainer, 
Be and abide with each one of us now and forever.